Good morning. Good morning. We welcome you to the chapel. Let me take just a moment, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time or the second or third time, to tell you we thank you for coming. And we hope that you, if you need any information, you can get it right outside the exit door to the right. We have a table there. We'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. If you have any kind of an appetite, please stay and eat with us. We have food for you and for, for all the members. We'd love to get to know you better. So please avail yourself of that, but we really welcome you to the chapel. Um, we believe this is a place of great hope because of Jesus Christ, and that's why we're here. Um, let me just hit um, two quick announcements with you. We, uh, we have a men's breakfast coming up on Saturday, September the 9th at 9 o'clock. And so Ed was telling me, easy way to remember this, 999. Okay? So it's September 9th at 9 a.m. You can sign up for that in the lobby. Um, so there's going to be cornhole competition and plenty of food. It'll be a great time, guys. So you want to come out for that men's breakfast on 9 9 at 9. Okay? Is that good, Ed? All right, we're good. Um, then on, on Sunday, September the 10th, Sunday school will be beginning again. So again, if you haven't been out to Sunday school for a while and you want to come, just come and try it out. And I, I think you might really enjoy it. It starts at 9.30. For the adults, we have uh, two different sections. Um, Pastor James and Ed will be heading up one that's going to be on enriching your marriage. So we really encourage you to come out and be involved with that. And the other one, um, Bill Dean and myself will be working through defending the faith. So um, kind of with all the onslaught of attacks that come our way, what might we be able to say back to some of those kinds of things? So defending the faith, marriage, enriching your marriage, uh, that'll begin September the 10th at 9.30. Please come on out and join us for that. Um, Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. We, uh, we do rejoice that uh, Amy Long is home from the hospital, so that's a really good thing. So I encourage you to continue to pray for her. Let, let, let's pray. Father, we rejoice that we are people of great hope, not because of our potential, not because of who we are, but because of who you are and because of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the hope we have in the gospel. We thank you that Christ has come, that he resurrected, that he ascended, that he's on high, and that he's coming back one day. And these great realities shape who we are and give us great hope as your people. We would pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would know the joy and the wonder and the hope that can only come in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, because we live on this side uh, of your coming, second coming, um, we, we know that the world in which we live uh, groans. Um, we think of the tragedy in, in Maui and, and uh, many folks that were lost there in that fire. And I pray that you would comfort in a way that only you can. We pray that the gospel would sweep across that area in very, very, very powerful ways. Father, we think of those that are sick and struggling uh, in our congregation. 
I pray, Lord, for you to work in their lives in such a way that they have such a deep sense that you are present, that you are up to something, that you are with them, that they can rest in you. And we would pray in each one of those situations that you would grant healing to their bodies, Lord, in accordance with your will. Uh, we, we, would, we would pray for that strongly. So God, again, as we come to this time of worship and then hearing your word, Father, please open our hearts. May they be receptive. May we have ears to hear your word. And may your spirit work in our hearts in such a way that we walk out of this place transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ, our beloved Lord. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, let's stand and worship together.
mystery in the dawning of the King. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of light has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, He the perfect Son of Man. In His living, in His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in Him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. And what a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in in power resurrected as we will be when he
the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain i could not climb in desperation i turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written jesus christ my living hope who could imagine so great a mercy what heart could fathom such boundless grace the god of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame thank you lord the cross has spoken i am forgiven the king of kings calls me his own beautiful savior i'm yours forever jesus christ my living sing this out to him sound. 
how good it is to sing praises to our Lord this morning. And in corporate worship is a special time that we get to just reflect back to God, uh, the blessings he's poured on us and the amazing plan of salvation. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've come into your presence today, Lord, with grateful hearts. Some, Lord, with challenges that they're facing and trials. Lord, I just pray for all the needs that are represented today, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to hearts. Pray, Lord, that your message from Pastor Tim would go forth strong and powerful this morning. And Father, we thank you for that living hope that is so powerful that makes that difference in our life, Lord, that we don't just go through life, Lord. We, we live life with you and we thank you and praise you for who you are and what you mean to us. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's reading is from 2 Peter chapter 3. Very appropriate for the challenging day that we live in, and we look forward to uh, Pastor Tim unpacking this for us. Verses 1 through 10. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word of the present, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. I want to ask you to uh, turn to 2 Peter 3 if you're not there yet. Was that me? All right, is that better? Children can be dismissed for junior church as well. So we've been working through uh, some challenging texts. Would you all agree with that? Uh, I think uh, the preaching that uh, we've been called to do over the last month or so has been from passages of Scripture that are... Uh, at one level, challenging, <clears throat> um, not necessarily because they're hard to understand, but because of the content that is present. And the content that is present uh, can be very sobering. Today, we come to the topic of the day of the Lord, which has two sides to it. Uh, the day of the Lord is a day that is a day full of joy. It's a day that's full of hope. 
But it is a day in scripture that is also a day of judgment. It is a day that is a very uh, sobering truth. So it is, in my notes, I just put it this way. The day of the Lord is a sobering ray of hope. All right, it's, it's, a, it's a light that shines brightly in the midst of a text that has been dealing with many different things. So here's the question I want you to kind of contemplate. What is meant by the day of the Lord? By the way, Chase, good to see you. And congrats on the new baby, okay? I think there's, by the way, there's another little baby back over that way, it was born on, did you say July 4th, right? A little baby was born, so... Uh, you back and see those little ones, all right? So we're grateful to have each of you here with those little ones today, okay? <clears throat> so when you think about the day of the Lord, and it, it, the, probably the best way to say it is that it, it is God's day. It's his day. And most of us know that when we go to special events, an event like a birthday, retirement, or a wedding, that we say to people, this is your day, right? And we, and we have an understanding of that. We we go to weddings and we, we do kind of weird things. We go to birthday parties and retirement parties and we, we defer to that person in a way that we normally do not. We make them the center of attention. We greet them in interesting ways. We give them gifts. That's not our normal mode of operation, is it? But when it's their day, everything is built around them. I always say to people, if you're at a wedding, and you're part of a, a, a bridal party, it's not appropriate for one of the bridesmaids to go for the wild hairdo to make herself stand out and attract attention away from the person whose day it is. Does that make sense? So, so you have that sense of the day of the Lord is God's day. It's the day when God will be in the way that I long for him to be, that he will be acknowledged, that he will be honored, that he will be glorified. Every tongue, Philippians 2 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day. Because I live in a world, I live in a culture where honoring and exalting Jesus and all that is attendant to that is not the tone of the world that I live in. So this is a, 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 a prophecy of God's day, a day of hope. John 14, Jesus said this. He says, I am going, but one day I will come again. And that is meant to calm hearts that were troubled by long seasons of stress and difficulty. But it is also a day of judgment. And it's interesting to think about this because when you talk about God being a God who judges, you get very strong and distinct reactions from the world that you live in. Some people will say, I don't want a God who judges. So simply because I don't like it, I reject it. And then you have people that say, if God doesn't judge, I don't want him to be my God either. Do you understand the perplexity of that or the paradox of that? I don't want a God who judges, who brings justice. But I can't live without a God who doesn't bring justice. Because my, my desire for justice is, is not voluntary. It is involuntary. Okay, since we're older, we have little ones called grandchildren, right? And if you're around grandchildren a little bit, especially if there's more than one of them, okay, you learn that there is this innate, involuntary demand for justice. You know what I'm talking about? I go, there's, there's a scuffle in the room. You walk in the room, there's two of your grandchildren that reflect you, 
very well. And one comes to you and says, tell her to give it back to me. It's mine. I had it first. What is that? Well, at one level, it could, you, you could say, stop being so selfish. Or you could say, why do you always insist on justice? Do, do you understand? It's, it's an involuntary, unlearned desire. Because we're created in the image of God. And there is an innate need to know that God sees. And one day God will move and God will act. On a more sobering side of that discussion about this involuntary need for justice. Uh, my wife and I went and watched the movie The Sound of Freedom. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to see it. I will not encourage you to see it because I think that you will find it enjoyable. But it's well done and you will find it incredibly challenging. There is no way that you could walk out of that movie and not be longing for justice. Okay? So all I'm saying is this. You and I live in a world where everybody wants payback, which often crosses the line. But what it really is signifying is that we want justice. We want someone who can come, who is not bribed, who cannot be bought, who can make the wrongs right, who can give what is deserved. There is that intense longing. A day when everything and everyone will yield to the rule in this case and in this text of God himself. And so what does the Bible speak of as it looks into the future? And it speaks in very broad terms in this text. It's very succinct. And in the text that James deals with next week, it's a little more elaborate. Okay? But what the Bible does talk about in terms of prophecy is that there is a coming of Jesus Christ, and there is a, a coming of tribulation. You can, you can debate on when and where those things take place and fall out, okay? But here's what we know. <clears throat> the book of Revelation, clearly, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 5, clearly predict that there is a season of trouble, and then there is a coming of Christ that brings resolution, resolve, and it's called what? A new heaven and a new earth Wherein dwells what? Do you know? Righteousness. Okay? The problem with the world that I live in is what? It is not a world in which dwells righteousness. It is a world that is being overrun by unrighteousness and injustice. And the Bible calls us to long for a day of the Lord in which righteousness will come. And what I would argue is this, even if you struggle with the concept of the coming judgment of God, and even this glorious idea of a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness rules, where right is done, where wrong is punished, if you, if you know about that, even if you reject it intellectually, you must admit that there is something in you that longs for a new situation that longs for a new justice, that longs for a new making of things right. And it's fascinating to me that that longing finds satisfaction in the promises related to the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ 
and to the day of the Lord. So why does Peter address this topic in this book? That becomes the question. And I would argue that the reason Peter addresses that topic in this book is because this book and his previous letter are written to people who are in the midst of suffering. And what is the effect of suffering and pain on your life? It can depress you. It can stress you. It can wear you down. It can cause you to lose hope. And so as Peter writes this, I believe that Peter's aim is to encourage the hearts of these people who are experiencing injustice, that is they are doing good and suffering. He wants them to know that God knows, God sees, and one day the day of the Lord is coming. And the Old Testament says justice will cover the earth like a flood. I long for that day. I know that's not the world I live in now. I know I can't bring it about all on my own. No human can bring it about. Only God can. And because of that season of struggle, we begin to ask questions like, is it worth it? Why doesn't God act? Will the promised return of Christ ever come, right? We, we had that question, but we have this undeniable longing. As I would argue, so does everyone in the world that we live in. Some of them know that that longing is real. Some of them just simply know that that's a desire I have, but I don't know what to do with it. And I think this text helps to uncover that. So as an introduction, I just, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna click off verses one and two rather quickly. It is really an introduction to the text, and in it, here's what Peter is saying. He says, this is the second letter I'm writing, so we know first and second Peter are written by Peter. He's writing to them a second time, because why? We need reminders. I don't know if you're like me, but as I read through scripture, I was reading in the book of Numbers recently, I'm like, you know, I forgot that, and I needed to remember that truth, because that affects my daily life in this way. Okay, so, so Peter writes, it, it, it's a reminder. I need to perpetually be in God's word, nurtured by that, nourished by that word. And so Paul, Peter writes a second time to, he says this in verse one, he says, I am writing to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Okay, and this idea of stimulating is, is to awaken a desire for, it's to stimulate, and in this case, it is to stimulate wholesome thinking. What is wholesome thinking? Wholesome thinking is pure. It has these overtones in context of ethical morality, okay? And what happens? I live in a world where I get worn down morally. My conscience continually confronted by depravity, whether it's visual, on TV, on a computer, on a phone, or audibly what I'm hearing, it starts to lose its sensitivity. And what happens? The world around me begins to define me rather than God's truth defining me. Peter writes so that the long season of suffering does not cause them to lose their moral clarity. And he, he reminds them of what? There's a day of the Lord coming. Live in light of that day in terms of your understanding of your moral life, of your ethical life, of how you relate to one another. Verse two, he says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he, Peter has an understanding. The apostles heard the word of God from Jesus and we're the divine instrument of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record that word so you and I would know how to live our lives 
even in long seasons of stress that wears us down and makes us think, when is this gonna end? And Peter's gonna answer the question, when it's gonna end. But his encouragement is to people that live in that time in between, in what the Bible calls the last day, which is time between the cross and the return of Jesus to make things right. That's where we live. It's an imperfect world. It's a hard world. It's a troubling world. And Peter says, I write so that you will recall the collective call of Old Testament and New Testament scriptures to a distinct life, to a holy life, to a different life because the world tends to encroach and creep into my personal experience. Then he goes on in verses three and four, and he gives a warning in this text. So let's listen to what it says. He says, above all, so that, that kind of goes after the idea of priority, significance, or importance, right? Above everything else, in their current situation, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their evil desires. They will scoff saying, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing has changed and the implication and charges, nothing ever will change. So what's going on? Well, the idea of scoffing is obviously the idea of mocking or belittling, okay? If you've ever been in a situation in your workplace or with your family where you thought something mattered as a biblical principle, as, as, as an issue of honoring Christ, and the people around you were clearly inclined to reject that love that you had for that principle, okay, what do people tend to do? They'll begin to belittle it. They'll begin to scoff at it. What's the purpose of that scoffing? It's not a compliment. Okay, the purpose of that pressure is to get you to change. Okay, we talked to our kids about peer pressure. What is this? This is, this is kind of a, a, a form of peer pressure where, where there is this belittling of the standards and the belittling of the hope in an effort to get you to release it. And the question that starts to emerge as you kind of read that is you start to wonder why, okay? You start to wonder why. So verse four, the expressed skepticism here is about the day of God, okay? And there's an understanding about the day of God. The day of God is a day of judgment. It's a day of evaluation. It's a day of assessment. It's a day of accountability for the things that I have done, for the choices that I have made. Okay, and that for all of us can get a little uncomfortable, admittedly, right? Well, there were these people who were asking the question, and it's really this, what has become of his promise? I mean, when Jesus left, he said, I will come again. And they're like, hey, it's been, you know, 60, 70 years, and he hasn't come back. And so they start belittling the promise because it stands unfulfilled. Does that make sense? That's the, 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 the tone of what's going on here. What they're really accusing Jesus of is he made a promise in John 14, I will come again and take you to be with myself, but he is a no-show. He made a promise, he gave you a false hope, let it go and live your life. That's the implication, that's why the pressure against your ethical beliefs rooted in biblical Christianity, that's why that pressure comes. 
It's not to compliment you. It's not simply to prove how strong your conviction is. It's to get you to shed your distinctives and your convictions. And you know that from the end of verse 3. In the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. So that starts to give you a hint as to where this pressure is coming from. What's the rub? Even if in your workplace, let's say you're not a, people don't even know that you're a believer necessarily, but they know that you hold to ethical norms. If you live, if you work in a context where compromise of ethical norms is normal, you will not be applauded, even though you should be. You understand? If you work in a compromised place where people sneak and get away with all kinds of things, they will mock you for not doing the same. Okay, every one of us has experienced that. Why do they do that? They want freedom. And your ethical position in their personal presence is a problem. So what do they do? They criticize you, they attack you, they belittle you to get you to change because what they want is unfettered freedom. And when it says they're following their evil desires, it means they want freedom from their moral boundaries, freedom to pick and choose from a moral smorgasbord of personal desires. They want to be unfettered in that. And what is the result? The result is when I live in a world where people want freedom from the idea of God, okay? So when you, when you bring up the thought that we are one nation under God with, and please understand how I say this, I am not saying we are a thoroughly Christian country in the past and in the present, okay? But there was a desire throughout the presence of a lot of leaders for there to be an acknowledgement that we as a country are under God, And what does that imply? That implies a level of moral expectation, and it clearly implies some level of accountability. Why do people scoff? They want freedom from critique. They want freedom from conviction, from a sense of being a sinner, of someone who falls short. And so what do I do? I belittle the standard giver so that I can be free from the standards that he has established. And that's what's going on here. And the result is that there's this picking and choosing, and the result is in an increasingly bizarre and irrational pursuit of sin. Because once I throw off any idea of an absolute standard of morality... And once I throw off any idea of a God who gave that standard by virtue of creation, I am free. But I will not live in a healthy world. I will live in a degrading world, in an unhappy world, in an enslaved world. Because freedom from God is not freedom. It is slavery. So verse 5 he says, but they deliberately forget. And that implies what? This willful rejection of moral standards that have any authority over my life. There is this willful rejection. 
okay? And the only morality that's present is a selective morality. It's, it's like going to the smorgasbord uh, out at Shady Maple, and you kind of pick the things that you like, and you let behind the things you don't like. So there's a big fruit table at Shady Maple, okay? I just avoid that, okay? I like meat and dessert, okay? Uh, my, my wife and I are working on this. So don't, you, you don't have to comment to me after what you think about that. I, I don't care, okay? I want to be free from what you think, so don't, don't restrict me, okay? So what is, what is Peter doing? Peter's writing the proper new perspective in this context where the norms that you hold to are being attacked and belittled. God has called you, and one day God is coming. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? I'm going to tell you guys something. There is something in every heart that longs for boundaries. You watch what's happening in Russia, and I just, I I mean nothing political by this whatsoever, but you watch the, the awful structure of a country like that where a man is in charge who is beholden to no one but himself. And the guy he took out maybe needed, maybe... Whatever, okay? But it's, I just did a Doug Finkbeiner. Whatever. Okay? But, but when you live in a world where the leader is free from boundaries and can be arbitrary on a whim, do whatever he wants, you will not love living in that country. And for all of the problems in America, I'm grateful that we at least have some established system of government. It's not always adhered to it as it should be by any stretch of the imagination. And every time on your side of an issue, you see it being handled in a way that you perceive to be unfair, you cry out for justice in your heart. You don't sit back and think, hey, Tim, how do you want to respond to that? I want justice. Okay, let's go. No, it's, it's involuntary. Okay, all the things, when you see riots on streets, forget all the broad discussion, forget that. A lot of that initially starts with an involuntary response to a perceived injustice. And then there's a piling on, right? Now people don't even know what happened, they just saw that there was an opportunity. Okay, but here's what I'm going to tell you. There is no comfort in living in a world like that. Okay, when you throw off absolutes and you say, I just want to do what I want to do. When you do that, you are throwing off God himself. And it won't end well. And so Peter gives a warning to them that there are people in this context. And what is Peter doing? He's writing to give them a new perspective that despite that pressure, long pressure that wears you down, don't throw in the towel. Trust God to work. Hold to his absolutes, hold to his standards. And what he does in the rest of the text, and this is my assessment of it, he gives you three massive reasons why you should cling to the promise of the return and day of the Lord. Okay, so that's what I want to work through. So let's look, first of all, verses five through seven. So he says, but they, and and I want you to note the contrast. They say he won't come. Okay, and they mock and they belittle to get you to change. And they say, you know, ever since the beginning of creation, our ancestors died and they lived and they died and everything goes on. It has been since the beginning, the promise of Jesus forecast a change in that pattern. That there's going to be a divine interruption and there will be divine justice. 
And are you ready for that day? Okay? So of the scoffers, he says, they are deliberately, and Doug covered some of this material last week, they deliberately set aside morality attached to an understanding of God so that they can do what they want. Okay? So they deliberately do that, but he gives a warning. He says they forget that by God's word, the world was created. It is my father's world. And when I try to cast God out of it, it's not going to end well. God created this text asserts by his word. I want you to notice this will become an emphasis in three verses. Creation by the word of God. The flood by, of water by the word of God. And the day of the Lord and the reconstituting of the world that we live in by the word of the Lord. Okay, so that becomes Peter's emphasis here. So the premise God created by his word. There is a creator God and he holds his people accountable. Do you believe the world was created by God? I want you to think about what I just said. Do you believe that? Or is it just an accident? And you're trying to get it to work. It's just, it's just random. It just, it just, it's just forces of nature. It's things exploding. It's, you can't get it to work. Because you, you have this undeniable and innate desire for justice. And here's what you're wondering. Where does that come from? Why can't I shed the guilt? Why won't the feeling of shame go away? And what you do is this. You blame it on everybody around you. You don't blame it on the one who made you. With the conscience, Romans 1, that tells you when you do wrong, your conscience is going to strike out against you. And in your sinfulness, what are you going to do? You're going to justify the decision that you made that you know was sinful. Because you want freedom from God. They deliberately refuse. Folks, I want to tell you, we can slip into the same action. What do they forget? They forget that the world was created by the word of God, and they forget the fact that this world and your life without God is meaningless. It's without purpose. Try to make an evolutionary world, a world created, or a world that came into existence without God, try to make it work. Try to understand where that sense of shame and guilt and remorse comes from. It only comes from the one who made you in his image. And all other attempts will fail. All other attempts to understand and to get free will fail. They're trying to get free. But what Peter's going to argue is you can't get free because God made you. And you have this sense of responsibility. If it's all meaningless, nothing matters. A good life, a selfish life, a moral life, an immoral life. If you reject God as your creator, your life has no meaning, no significance. There is no right, no wrong, no purpose. And how you live makes no difference. You know what I would do if that was true? I would indulge myself. I would, as the old commercial said, go for the gusto. Because I only have one chance. And I will throw off all moral restraint to get the little bit that I can get out of a meaningless life. My, my question would be this, why are you even seeking for meaning and joy? The answer is you were created for that. And you can't get away from it. And you try, 
and you rebel against God, the notion of God, the image of God inside of yourself, you fight it so you can get free, but you can't. And by your conscience, God is calling, and by his spirit, God is calling. If God created, then the world has purpose. There is rule, there is a biblical morality, God-given, and there is accountability, and there will be a day of justice. He has the right as creator, and he has the responsibility as creator to govern, guide, and judge. And then what he does is he slips back into historical precedent, verse, verse, uh, verse six, the precedent of the flood. Right at the beginning of creation, what happened? God formed the world, and there's all this water stuff going on at creation, right? And the, 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 the spirit's hovering over the water, and the water's divided in acts of, of the work of a creative God. And then that world rebels against God. And when that rebellion of God gets to a point that is intolerable, that's, that's going to lead to a destruction of that world itself, it's going to self-destruct. He intervenes with an act, verse 6, that tells us about this. They forget, verse 6, that by these waters also, and by this word of God that controlled those waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So there's historical precedent for the promise of Christ. There will be a destruction and a reconstruction, a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness that we all are longing for without even knowing it. And then verse seven, he says this, he says, by the same word, that same God, because he is the word, by that same word, the present heavens are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now that is a sobering text and here's what I'm going to argue and, and, and there's all kinds of reactions in our hearts when we read that right this is not a cause for gloating this is a serious text this is sobering truth and it caused the apostle Paul to say knowing therefore the terror of the Lord of and please understand this not the terror of a God who is arbitrary who reacts on a whim but knowing the terror of a holy God who created, loves, and guides, and, 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 and controls his world, and must, as a parent, we say to parents, you don't take care of your kids, you're being irresponsible. Same is true in relationship to creation. God created it, and he governs it, and he must hold it accountability, and one day he will hold it accountable. That's the thrust of this text. Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men of the justice of God. We call them to repent before it's too late while there is opportunity. And I would just say this to you this morning. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you hear God calling, if you hear God exposing, saying to you, I am your creator, and that innate sense, that innate need for justice comes from the God who made you. Even when you sin, you had this need to go and to Straighten it out. And you can't apart from God. But thank God for that. Thank God for a conscience that says, Tim, that was, no, that was wrong. You need to make that right. Thank God for that. I think, who would I be without the work of the Spirit of God and without my conscience? Who would I be? I'd be a mess. And I thank God that generally speaking, people have a conscience. You can tell in certain circumstances that you're in where people will act to protect impulsively 
didn't plan to share this story, but about a month and a half ago, Lake Nakanexan, I was driving by it, saw rescue vehicles, boats, in the water, everything. Said, I gotta look up what happened. Turns out that a 58-year-old Hispanic man who could not swim and knew that he couldn't saw two young men in that lake struggling for their lives. And he dove into that water and he rescued those two men and succumbed. Just think about that. Why did he jump in? Because he didn't think it was right that those two young men would drown. And so he responded innately to what was inside of him. And he acted in relationship to that and sacrificed his life for the saving of someone else. Think about that. Why did he do that? Why, if it's just an arbitrary world, if it's just evolutionary process, why would that even matter? Why would those two lives be valuable? Because God created him. And God gave him innately a love for others that yes, it's broken by my fallenness, but it is undeniable. He didn't think about his own life. He just acted in response to the fact that he was made in the image of God and that he cared about other people. Amazing story. Man, when you deny that, things, things will go very badly. So my first point is this. God is a promise keeper. That's what verses five to seven tell us. By the same word, he will come, he will bring judgment, and he will bring restoration. Okay, God will keep his, so this is the response. So those that are saying, where's the day of the Lord? He's a no-show. What has become of his promise? Number one, based on the Old Testament truth, God is a promise keeper and you can count on it. Now his timing is different than yours and mine. And this is the point of contention, right, for all of us. God, I love justice now. But I am glad I don't get justice now. It's complex. So God keeps his promises. Secondly, from verses eight and nine, God is patient and just. And I'm, I'm, I have and in quotes. God is patient and God is just. So what's my problem? Come on, God. Do, do you remember the story with the disciples of Jesus? There were people that were opposing them. And what did the disciples say to Jesus? Because they understood who he was, that he was God. They remembered the story of Elijah when God sent down fire. And what was their response? Hey, Jesus, they're opposing you. Zap them. Right? And you know what their problem was? He didn't do it. He was kind and gracious on the cross. Folks, listen. On the cross, when the greatest tragedy, the greatest disaster of injustice fell on the Son of God, what did he say? Father, forgive them. Don't give them today what they deserve. Avert that wrath. They don't know what they're doing. Do you, I don't know about you, but if I was God, it would be a different world. There wouldn't be many people left. <laughs> and Jesus had to resist in his disciples this natural tendency to say, I want justice now, and if you don't bring it now, I want a different God. That was Judas. That was Judas. Restore the glory of the kingdom now, because he was a zealot into earthly things. 
and he could not tolerate a patient savior. And he lost his life. Is that amazing? God is patient. Verse eight says this, but, okay, in the delay, while you're being worn down, while you're struggling, do not forget this one thing. Dear friends, and I love that. He starts the beginning of the chapter with dear friends. In verse eight, he brings up this theme of dear friends again, and he's gonna do it many times throughout the text. He says, don't forget this one thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. There are a number of times in the Old Testament, I think it's in Isaiah and in Psalm 90, that the, the psalmist observes, God, to you, a thousand years is but a day. God is on a totally different timetable than Tim Hoff. You know why? I have a starting point. I have a birth date. And in less than a week, I'll turn, gosh, I'll turn 63. Okay, and you're all supposed to say, how could he be 63? No, I, I, I've been around 63 years. You guess what a thousand years is to me? It's a lot of years. I don't know what I'd look like if I lived a thousand years, but it'd be, it'd be pathetic. It wouldn't even be interesting. So here, here's the thought, okay? We look and we say, God, it's been a long time. It's been two days. Okay, you take your kids for a ride in the car. In this case, for me, it would be the grandkids or my wife, okay? Since she does look a lot younger than me. Okay, you take her for a ride in the car. Hey, how long is the ride going to be, Poppy? Two hours. And 10 minutes in, what are they saying? Are we there yet? Okay, so not only is my need for justice involuntary, my tendency to be impatient is also involuntary. In a couple of days, I'm like, Lord, Right, and, 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 and as he writes, he, he's trying to give them perspective. Okay, it reminds me of a, a humorous thing. I, I had to do this from memory just to try to give you this idea here of perspective. How long, a, a child says to God, how long is a thousand years to you? And God replies, one second. Child says to God, how much is a thousand dollars to you? God says, a penny. The boy says to God, God, can I have a penny? God says, in just a second. <laughs> Okay, it's, it's out of, we're out of perspective. What do I need? I need perspective. I need to know that God in the long season of suffering, he's got it. I don't need to panic and I don't need to take revenge because he's got it. Do you see how transformational this theology of the coming of the Lord is the day of the Lord, his day, when everything will defer to him, every knee will bow on heaven and in earth and declare that he is Lord. Man, I long for that day. And I'm really impatient about it too. Here's the truth. Slow and fast are flexible, right? Sometimes I'll call a friend and I'll say, hey, I'll be there in a minute. I'm coming from Phillipsburg to Washington. I'll be there in a minute. You liar. <laughs> no, uh, we slow and fast are flexible, right? And that's, that's why with the kids, it's that way in the car. We have different understandings of it. We want God slow with us and fast with them. 
and we say to God, if you are just, why aren't you doing anything? And his response is, because I'm patient. And in truth, the only reason you're alive is because I'm patient, for the wages of sin is death. You've lived more than one day, God's been patient with you. If you don't understand that, talk to your kids or your mate. Talk to a coworker and ask him to tell the truth about who you are. And then let your heart turn to God and say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for not giving me what I deserve. Thank you for your mercy and grace. He is patient. Verse nine says this. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness. As some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Why, God? Why? Why don't you give me what I deserve? Why hasn't your just judgment fallen on me? Why? Because you're not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Folks, this is the heart of God. God is not arbitrary. God, God does not take delight in you know, the, old, the old kind of old mind pictures of God. He's casting down flaming arrows. He's destroying people with the idea that it is arbitrary and that he takes pleasure in doing it. That he finds joy in doing it. No, you know what the Bible tells us? It tells us that when Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem, where he would be slaughtered, sinless and slaughtered, he looks at the city of Jerusalem and his heart breaks for that city. He says, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And here's what the text says, he wept when he saw the rebellion of the nation of Israel. He is patient and he is just. His judgment is not arbitrary. It's not on a whim. He does not gloat in it. And I'm going to give you this definition. This is not from any theology book, and you can ask Doug and James about this. This is just what I deduce from this broader picture of the judgment of God and the patience of God, that God's judgment is the reluctant, and by that I don't mean that God is like, I don't know if that would be the right, that's not what I mean by that. I mean that he is patient, that he waits, that he... he, He stops, he relents. It is the reluctant but necessary response of a holy God to human rebellion. Okay, I'm trying to capture a lot of what's going on in this text. The judgment of God is the reluctant, meaning he is patient. He gives time, he calls out. But it is also the necessary response of a holy, just God to human rebellion. Folks, let me illustrate this. I've, I've, I've uh, encountered police on a couple occasions. And when they ask where I'm going, I'm honest. Okay? And that usually helps me. <laughs> I mean, I had a little more to the answer. I'll say, look, I'm a pastor. I'm going to a counseling appointment, if I genuinely am. Okay? When that policeman says, oh, sorry to interrupt you, and hands back my license, was he just? Was he just? Absolutely not. Was he merciful in that he did not give me what I deserved? The answer is absolutely yes, and I say, thank you so much. 
Okay, that's not justice when he lets me go. That's mercy. You should get a ticket. You should pay a $129 fine. Here's your stuff. Sorry to interrupt. Okay? That's not justice. That's mercy. So the question becomes this. How is God just in the forgiveness of rebels who have merited, when I say that I mean who have earned his wrath? When God says, you can go. How is that fair? How is it just? How does Romans 3 says, say all of this happened, talking about the work of Christ on the cross, so that he might be just, a holy God who brings justice, and the justifier of rebels? See, that was Paul's point of contention. And the answer to his struggle was, in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God that Tim Hoff deserves falls on him, and it is satisfied. The debt is paid in full. And I, as a repentant sinner, am forgiven and set free. That's how God is just. So this text kind of argues this point. His judgment is not arbitrary. His judgment is necessary. But how can he be just in the forgiveness of rebels who deserve his wrath? And the answer to that question is this question. Who passed on judgment day? Who died on judgment day? Who gave up his life on judgment day? And the answer is this. The sinless son of God. On the day that God's wrath was most clearly displayed, the Son of God bore that just penalty, consequence of Tim Hoff's sin. So that if I turn, if I repent and turn to him, he would forgive me and change my life forever. What does verse 9 say? The Lord is not slow about his promise. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repent. So the implication of that is this. Those that repent experience a change of relationship with a just God. They move from being condemned to justified. They move from being sinful to being forgiven. Who passed on judgment day? The son of God. My sin is born by him. The gospel demands this. My standing is not in what I have done, but in what has been done for me. My need is not reformation. I, I need to do better. People say to as, as a pastor, people feel obligated to say certain things to you. Here's one of them. Pastor, I know I don't come to church as regularly as I should. Pastor, I need to try harder. Pastor, I, I, I know I need to treat my wife with more kindness. I need to... I need to, and I need to. Folks, please understand this. The road to hell is paved with personal effort. It's paved with reformation. Because it demands that I do something to earn God's favor. But the gospel of Christ says your standing with God is given to you as a gift from God in response to a heart that is changed and repents. Reform is futile and only produces pride. Man, the, the damning thought 
that I'm better than those Christian people, those hypocrites. I'm better than them. You know, the ones that go to church. Therefore, that is a damning thought. Going to church doesn't save you. Reformation doesn't save you. Trying harder doesn't save you. The gospel of Christ saves you. God in the gospel is just and God in the gospel is merciful. He does not wink at my rebellion, no. At the cross, the just wrath of God that Tim Hoff deserves falls on his sinless son. It is not ignored, it is not overlooked, it is placed on his son. Jesus stood in my place, took the wrath of God that I deserve so that I could be free from it. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us before a holy and just God, that we might be accepted by him. A Christian looks at Jesus and says, because you were judged for me, I am counted free. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sin, the consequence of it, in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, Isaiah 53, by his wounds. You have been healed. By his work, by what he did, you are forgiven and set free. Folks, do you understand that? That's why when we sing songs of the gospel, there is glory and there is joy. We are sinners who have been changed by the grace of God. We have been healed, what he did for us. And I avoid the judgment of God in verse seven. The judgment I deserve because it fell on Jesus. Repentance allows me to sing because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted clean and God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. He looks at his son and everything he sees, he attributes to me the payment for my sin, his righteousness, all given as a gift of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Folks, do you understand how that would change your life? If you know that your standing with God is not by merit of your own, because if it's by merit of your own, you will become proud, you will become judgmental, you will be a fault finder everywhere you go, and you will become an intolerable person to be around. But if you've been forgiven by the grace of God, and here's how you know you have been, you respond differently when you're offended with the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the gospel. I'm not saying we don't struggle, please understand. But when we respond in our flesh and when we buy into payback, the spirit of God pricks and convicts our hearts. It says, no, that is wrong. And if I am a child of God, if my heart is truly regenerate, I will be sensitive to that call of God and responsive to it. And if I am not sensitive to it, if I do not hear his voice, I should not comfort myself with the fact that somewhere in the past, I prayed a pair of faith in God. If my life has not been changed, is there is not a sensitivity to the glory of the cross and understanding that is life transforming of what Christ has done for me. Do not comfort yourself in the fact that you go to church. It is only because the sinless Savior died that my sinful soul is counted clean. And that truth, as you begin to relate in life, is going to change you. God's day gives grace when we are wronged. 
at understanding of the gospel grace changes me when I experience that unjust behavior. Romans 12, 17, here's the way Paul said it, never take revenge. Do not buy into the mindset of payback. Leave room for the wrath of God. You know what God's saying? I got that. I got, I, I'm the creator. I am omnipotent and I know all things. I got that. You do not have to pay back. You are free. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, the doctrine of the justice of God, that one day he will come and judge the world, changes how I relate to my wife. should change how I relate to my kids. should change how I relate to people at work that are jerks, for lack of a better, better word. That irritating person that you just, ugh, you wish them gone. In a sense, you're wishing them dead. May God help us. I wish they didn't exist. God's day gives grace when we are wronged. Ephesians 4.32 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, evil behavior. Instead, be kind, tenderhearted, and forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. And when you understand that God is just, you can do that. When you think he isn't, when you wonder if he is, you will become a dangerous person, and so will I. God's day gives confidence when we face seasons of trouble. Knowing that God has it all, that he is, the whole world is, we, that, that old song, the, he's got the whole world in his hands. Folks, listen, it, it, we sing it as trite often, but when you step back and think of that, he is sovereign over us. Every circumstance of your life, he controls for his glory. Knowing he has it all in his sovereign hands gives poise. It gives grace in the context of unfair treatment. And I'm going to tell you something. When that poise and that grace is demonstrated in your workplace, people notice. Because you also know this, right? When you fail, they see that too. And they usually make a lot out of that. Right? But all those faithful Mitigated, measured responses. God says, I saw that. Hebrews 6.10. As a pastor, it's one of my favorite verses. It says, God is not unjust. How do we know that? Here's what the text says. He will not forget the work you have done and the love you have shown to his saints. I say, praise God. I texted a friend on it was Saturday or Friday just to say, I know that you do a lot that no one could ever possibly know. There's no way that anybody could know everything you're doing. So thank you. And I put Hebrews 6.10. Because in the long, faithful service to God in an unjust world where you get smacked around sometimes, you need to know and you need to remember that God is not unjust. And in your forgiveness, he is just because of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, verse 10 talks about this destruction. At the end, it says this. It says, and everything will be laid bare. I find that comforting and terrifying. He's a just God. Everything will be laid bare, exposed. You know what that means? 
I may have secrets with you. There may be stuff in my life that John Whitehead doesn't know about, but I have no secrets with God. Everything will be laid bare. That which is good and that which is bad. All I can say is this. Hallelujah, what a savior. And knowing that God is just causes me to realize I need a savior and his name is Jesus. If you've never trusted him, I hope this makes the gospel clear to you. It's not what you have to do. This text is not a call to reformation. This is a call to prepare by repenting and trusting in the cross work of Jesus for the day of his coming, because it's coming. Are you ready? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, uh, wow. What a powerful text and what a sobering ending. Everything will be laid bare. Every thought, every deed, every act, every expression of anger that I can hide from the world around me, I can keep it private, it's just in my house, will be laid bare. Every act of dishonesty in the workplace related to time work, related to expenses, all seen by you. Every act of unfaithfulness, every act of lust, every unkind word known laid bare. And Lord, when I think of that here, all I can say is I need a savior. I need a savior. And a Jesus you have given one. Glorious savior and Lord. Jesus, thank you for the price you paid for my freedom and for the freedom that you provided for every person in this room who repents, simply says, God, I am the man, I am the woman, I am the young person. I today acknowledge that I am a sinner and you are a great and glorious savior. Save me today by the power of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and sing. Yes, it is holy side. He 
Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you do hold us fast. <clears throat> thank you, Lord, but by the same power that you hold us, you rose Jesus from the grave, and we can confidently proclaim that you will hold us until the day that you come back. So, God, we're just depending on that this morning. Thank you for Tim's message to us. I, I ask, Lord, that you would just help us to go into our weeks um, encouraged by the fact that you are going to hold us though the rest of our culture and world and everything else just crumbles around us. Uh, so, Father, just hold us as we do that. Bless us as we go. Thank you for this time. Thank you for our church. We uh, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a nice week, everybody.